0: Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Me, your rabbi, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we must depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes, and never will change, is our human relationship with something called money. And it's worthwhile making sure that not only do we understand it, but that those for whom we are responsible, those whom we either brought into the world biologically or those whom we are bringing into the world spiritually by teaching, by educating, by acculturating them, by essentially making ourselves responsible for teaching them how the world really works. None of that is possible without an understanding of money. And if there's one reality that we can learn from the past few decades, it is that the public perception of anything really does shape real-life outcomes. And uh, one frightening change during this period has been a war on wealth conducted in response to a growing public perception that somehow the rich got that way by stealing from the poor. Now, this perception includes the idea that wealth-producing activities are faintly unseemly, and that economic activity causes rather than cures poverty. There is a way to restore the prestige of business success that requires a return to tradition. In order to examine it, we have to analyze the nature of money. As we look around us, we cannot help but fail to notice that there are phrases that are used which reveal how people really think. The most insidious of these is the one you always hear commentators using whenever a well-known philanthropist makes some major gift to a charity. And the phrase is always, how wonderful it is to see him giving back to society. Uh, Sometimes it is a, a donor, him or herself, saying, I just felt it was time for me to give back to society. Well, what's so insidious about that phrase is that if giving charity is giving back to society... What were you doing to society while you were making the money in the first place? Obviously, ripping them off. And that's what's so dangerous about that. The idea that somehow we have to expiate the sin of making money by giving charity. And nothing could be further from the truth. Giving charity? Sure. I think it's a good idea. I think it's worthy on on many, many different levels. But it is no more incumbent upon people with a huge amount of money than it is upon people with a small amount of money. Everybody should be giving away at least 10% of their income. That's what we should all be doing. It's got absolutely nothing to do with your success or lack of it. Uh, There are other phrases. One of them is unearned income. You know what unearned income is? It's that uh, if you put the capital which you have carefully accumulated through years of work at risk and you sink it into an investment and against odds that pays off. The money you get from that is unearned income. You don't really deserve that. You didn't do anything. That is an unbelievably materialistic view of the economy. If you weren't digging ditches, you didn't earn that money. And uh, and so it is. It's you, you know you hear politicians often using the phrase it was one that the last president was very po- very uh, fond of. The rich must pay their fair share. Okay, again, subtle implication that the rich are getting away with something. Who are the rich? Well, that doesn't get defined. As a matter of fact, all the people are wildly applauding the politician who says, yeah, the rich must give their fair share, will sadly discover all too quickly that they will be next in line to be fed to the crocodiles under the heading of the rich. Okay, let's, let's take a look at the nature of money. Decades before our computer-controlled virtual labs, Albert Einstein created his famous thought experiments. They allowed him to solve problems for which actual laboratory experiments would have proven too expensive or too dangerous or just impossible to conduct. For instance, rather than measuring gravity in an elevator dropping down a three-mile elevator shaft, the great scientists showed that just as well we can do a lot more safely even by analyzing the situation from the comfort of our own desks in the social sciences also we can make excellent use of the idea of a thought experiment let us conduct a thought experiment to see if we can understand the origins of our own calendar the protocol proceeds as follows. We deposit a young boy and a young girl on an otherwise deserted tropical island. You can see why this is going to have to be a thought experiment, right? I mean, you just know that those pesky child protective service agencies are going to interfere with the conduct of this experiment. So, confining it to the area of thought, we uh, place them on the island, we take care that they have enough to eat, and we set up some concealed surveillance equipment, and we observe their development. I think we can safely uh, stipulate that they will discover the secret of sex and reproduction. I think we can count on that. After a century or two, I think we can agree that they will have increased their numbers substantially. By now, we're watching a fully-fledged society. However, they remain utterly oblivious of any other human beings or of any human history. They're totally isolated. However, they will probably notice a certain periodicity in the heavens, right? Eventually, they'll develop a calendar, after a few more centuries of experience they will discover that the solar year contains 365 days yeah i know it's 365 in a quarter roughly but for the purposes of this thought experiment let's just go with 365 okay in the same way prolonged scrutiny of the skies will eventually yield them a lunar month of you know about 30 days Yeah, I know it's actually 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, three and a third seconds, but let's just go with 30 days. However, I'm sure you'll agree that it is highly unlikely in our thought experiment that this isolated society will ever adopt a seven-day week. Not only is there no visible astronomic seven-day cycle, but seven does not divide evenly into either 365 or into 30, which makes it an illogical choice because it messes up the calendar. This is one of the reasons that you have to buy a new calendar every December the 31st, whereas if they came up with a different number of days for the time period we think of as a week, why, that would work very well indeed. On our thought experiment, this isolated society would most likely establish a five-day week because this would make each calendar year a perfect replica of the preceding one. That would be really useful. So why do we have something as confusing and artificial as a seven-day week when switching it to five would make so much sense? Well, there's only one reason, and that's because we retain a primeval collective memory that long ago God initiated a seven-day cycle as a kind of divine circadian rhythm. It's hard otherwise to account for the wide acceptance of the seven-day week. And just as the seven-day week is the result of a collective memory of a religious tradition, so too is money. While our clandestine survey of this remote island nation, will reveal the islands, islanders bartering with one another, it's, lot, it's a lot less certain uh, that they'll make the jump of assigning value to discs of metal. In all probability, that would not happen on our island, as indeed it failed to happen in many parts of the real world. In fact, virtually all populations— that were isolated from Bible-based religious tradition, failed to make the leap from barter to coins and, yes, to capital. Where the Bible served as the earliest source of wisdom, people understood the role of gold and silver. They learned how greatly to expand trade and, therefore, wealth by employing precious metals as an exchange medium. They understood the role of private property and the role of law in protecting that property. And naturally, these people enjoyed a gigantic head start over those who had to discover this all by trial and error. Let's take a quick break. Uh, The website, com, where you will find it possible to do an instant download of a wonderful set called the Biblical Blueprint Set. Now I'll tell you more about it. But meanwhile, if you go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, not only will you be able to subscribe to Thought Tools and to Susan's Musings and to the weekly Ask the Rabbi column, and not only would you be able to communicate and send us a, a letter or a question, but you'll be able to read up about the biblical blueprint set and how you can download it right now or At the end of the show, we're back, everybody. And thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. By which I mean to say thank you not only for listening, but I thank you also for the enormous help you've all been in promoting the show and telling other people about it. I avidly watch the download figures on all the various platforms on which the show appears. Uh, in order to get a sense of our growth. And it's very gratifying. It's exciting. And it it makes me throw myself into the show with renewed vigor and renewed enthusiasm. So I very much appreciate that. Okay, well, uh, we go on. And um, you'll remember, we left our uh, new little society or nation on a remote and isolated island. And... um, and we noticed that, uh, little by little, they understood the role of private property, and they understood the role of gold and silver. But the the idea is, or at least what I was trying to say. I'm sorry, I I, I confuse things a little bit. What I was trying to say is that uh, on the remote and isolated island, they never did figure out how to move away from bartering, but it was the Bible that served as the earliest source of wisdom. It helped people understand the role of gold and silver and how to expand trade and develop wealth and how to use precious metals as an exchange medium. All of that happened because these people who had connection with the Bible, those nations and societies with the Judeo-Christian connection, enjoyed a huge head start over those who had to discover it all by trial and error. There was another reason why... Those Western civilizations based on the Bible flourished economically. You see, the individual character traits that Judeo-Christian Bible-based thought promotes are the very qualities that best prepare people for effective roles in commerce. One of the most important of these is the faith habit. Faith accustoms people to the real world, wherein almost every worthwhile venture requires one to make a major commitment with no assurance of success. For example, people marry without the help of a crystal ball that would predict all the ups and downs of their lives ahead. Farmers plant and await crops that may or may not ripen. And of course, investments of capital always involve risk people buy a house. They have no idea what's going to happen to that neighborhood down the road. You make your best decision, but essentially we act on faith. Well, we know that those people who live lives connected with Judeo-Christian biblical tradition tend to have well-developed faith muscles. That puts them in a better position. To function in a free market economy. As a matter of fact, you'd probably agree if I say the very act of accepting metal discs or pieces of colored paper in exchange for a day of backbreaking labor in itself requires enormous faith. To understand the true dimensions of that faith, just think about how things go in the absence of faith when investors lose faith in markets, when depositors lose faith in banks, when citizens lose faith in the currency, disaster strikes. However, as long as the faith habit is intact, people will accept payment for their goods and services. They do so out of faith that when they require some commodity— some vendor somewhere will in turn accept their little metal discs or scraps of colored paper. As long as the future remains uncertain, people who maintain Bible-inspired faith have a huge advantage, whether as spouses or farmers or investors or builders or anything. Judeo-Christian thought Nurtures another personality trait which also serves well those who practice capitalism, and that is deferment of gratification. A religious outlook helps to promote saving rather than impulse spending. It also inculcates in people the idea that there is merit in doing the right thing for its own sake rather than for reward. This also is a valuable mindset for the ambitious entrepreneur who has to focus on filling a need rather than on other people's purses. Everybody wants money, but those who pursue it directly instead of seeking a niche usually fail. The most conspicuous commercial successes are achieved by those who find a way to serve other people or to provide them with the things they want. I do wish that I could solve the, the problem of um, phone calls. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself that if this was a live show over a terrestrial radio station, I've got to think that right now the the lights would be lighting up and uh, there would be calls with people either questioning or elaborating cuz you know i'm i'm sort of really i'm i'm moving quickly i'm talking about a lot of things uh because i'm i'm trying to illustrate um you know what 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 money really is but unfortunately uh we don't have i don't have the capacity at the moment um to Uh, be able to record this show in such a way so as that uh, live calls can come in while people are listening. I'm just not quite sure how to do that. Uh, At the same time, I just want to say that people are amazingly responsive. Do you remember a little while ago I mentioned how I keep a um, Uh, a rubber band of of three by five index cards with me at night because I sometimes wake up in the night with an idea particularly if I gave myself the job of working subconsciously on a problem and I happen to mention on the show that um, a pen with a light in it would be really useful so I don't have to turn on a light because I don't want to disturb Susan Lappin. And so I I write in the dark, and in the morning there's been more than one occasion. (laughs) I can't can't even begin to decode what I wrote. Well, I mentioned this on the show, and would you believe it? Not one, not two, but three different people from around the country uh, responded, helping me solve the problem of pens with lights. Yes, friends, there actually is such a thing a pen with little lights in it, of which I am now the proud owner. Just wanted to tell you that. Uh, so when I say I appreciate you all listening, and I appreciate all of you who helped promote the show, and I appreciate those of you who respond, as as, as so many of you have, uh, I really do. So it's a heartfelt thank you. Um, so, so as I was saying, um, financial success is usually one by people who find a way to give other people the things they need, services or goods. Now, religious teachings that emphasize the virtue of charity thus fit well into business school curricula. Now, they don't really, but they should, because charity helps to loosen the tight grip that many of us instinctively have on our money. Let me tell you something. No miser ever turned into a great investor. It doesn't happen that way. A miser never becomes an investor. Religion encourages people to give, to open up their hands. It encourages people to raise family, families, I should say. Uh, And families are the very best incubators of entrepreneurs. It's true. They really are. When people who grew up in dysfunctional families, when people who grew up without families um, suffer from poverty, the problem isn't that the government isn't giving them enough money. The problem is they were not raised by a mother and a father dedicated to acculturating them into the real world. It's in a family that the young future business professional learns the value of labor, and also about specialization, by the way, from wise and responsible parents. Children learn virtually all the skills necessary for a great first job. It's true. When somebody comes to you for a first job, really, all you should be asking them in an interview is tell, tell you about their family. And as you listen to it, if they grew up in a terrific family with great parents, you probably have yourself a terrific employee. And uh, perhaps the last thing I, I want to say in this segment is that religion's emphasis on family helps an economy because very few great commercial enterprises get built in one generation. It is children that fuel a man's ambition to drive himself beyond the needs of his own lifetime does that make sense i hope so um, i'll carry on right after the break but first of all the uh, the the website rabbi daniel com. the resource i recommend for your attention is the download of a set of audio programs called the biblical blueprint program the biblical blueprint program. Um, And rather than me uh, tell you all about it, why don't you just go on to rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store and read up. You'll see there's a whole description of the biblical blueprint program. And uh, if you're looking for something to do in your family, if you want to have a discussion with your children Well, every one of the audio programs in my Biblical Blueprint set would serve as a very valuable thing for you all to listen to together and then pause it at appropriate moments as discussion crops up. I think you'll find it to be extremely valuable in that regard. Okay, I'll be right back. Hello, everybody. And yes, we're back. I, your rabbi... Revealing how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that there is not and there has not been any society ever on this planet that has embraced atheism and has also operated a successful free market. Isn't that weird? If you think about it, isn't that odd? That no successful economy has ever sprung up from a doctrinal atheistic society hasn't and that this hasn't happened is not a coincidence but it's an inevitable consequence of the spiritual nature of money let me analyze that a little bit further together with you All human activities can be located somewhere on a spectrum that is anchored at one end by spirituality and at the other by physicality. Now, I just want to emphasize that when I say spiritual or spirituality, please don't for a moment think that that word is synonymous with holy, godly, virtuous. No, 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 no. Spiritual simply means something not measurable by any known laboratory instrument. Okay, so uh, imagine the spectrum line, if you will. At one end, you can put a big label, spiritual. And at the other end, you can put a big label, physical. And now let's put certain activities in their appropriate place on the line. Great exercise, by the way. If you, if you got uh, bright, curious children and uh, you want to do an exercise like this with them, I think you'll be very gratified both by the experience and the results. Okay, let's put prayer. How about praying? Okay, that's easy, right? We're going to put that near the spiritual end, obviously. How about reading and writing? Yeah, you know what? We're going to have to put them there as well. Composing music. Making tools. Those are all over on the spiritual side of the spectrum. Um, How's about sex? As the source of of both great sensual pleasure, obviously, and also the source of all new life, sex might be somewhere near the mid-spectrum, maybe. While eating and going to the bathroom, well, they belong over towards the physical end. Commercial transactions, where do they belong? Well, on the spiritual end. Let me explain. One way of identifying a spiritual act is by determining whether your pet chimpanzee would understand it. Now, I think everybody should have a pet chimpanzee, regardless of what Peter says. I, I have one, and you should have one too. And um, obviously, this is also part of the thought experiment, because it is really so much more pleasant to keep an imaginary chimpanzee than a real one. Now, why is it that a chimpanzee can help us determine where on the spiritual-physical spectrum line an activity belongs? Well, this is because the good Lord endowed man with his spirit, and so that way he distinguished between a man and a chimpanzee. When I return home from work and slump into a comfortable armchair, my chimpanzee undoubtedly sympathizes. As I move to the dinner table and begin eating, he certainly gets it. When I open a newspaper, however, and hold it motionless in front of my face, the chimp becomes quite confused. This test suggests that a business transaction is more spiritual than physical. A chimpanzee would not have the slightest idea of what is transpiring between proprietor and customer at the counter of a store. Economic exchange takes place only after two thinking, sentient human beings will it. The process is spiritual. Human beings are always slightly uneasy about pursuits that have no spiritual overtones at all. When necessary, we superimpose spirituality precisely to avoid being exclusively physical, and thus, well, uncomfortably animal-like. We apply ceremony and ritual to our actions that are also animalistic. Only people read a book or listen to music. That's why those activities require no associated spiritual ritual. On the other hand, all living creatures eat, engage in sexual activity, give birth, and die. Now, if we people do not confer a uniquely human ritual on those functions, we reduce the distinction between ourselves and animals. And therefore, we people, we celebrate the birth of a child often by a naming ceremony. No animal does that. Even if our hands are quite clean, we wash them before eating, rather than afterwards like a cat does. We prefer to serve food in dishes on a tablecloth, rather than straight out of the can. Although, we have to admit that the physical, nutritional qualities have not in any way been enhanced by a white tablecloth and nice china. We even say a grace or a benediction, how about after encountering an attractive potential sexual partner? People do not proceed directly to physical intimacy like animals, no. An engagement announcement followed by a marriage ceremony serves to accentuate that all-important distinction. No animal announces its intention to mate and then defers gratification for three months while it calmly prepares its wedding and its future homes. No, you don't find animals doing that at all. The more physical our activity, the more awkwardness and subconscious embarrassment surrounds it. Nudism. Nudism is practiced with a certain bravado that is so evident it's, it's almost embarrassing how deliberate nudists are in pretending to be indifferent to the fact that they're naked. Why? Because they're trying to conceal the underlying tension. Uh, there was a famous photographer, I think he was British, called Richard Avedon. Uh, he shattered a barrier by capturing images of people as they ate. Frozen in the act of chewing, humans resemble apes rather than angels. Our mothers, who of course were all raised in a Judeo-Christian tradition, taught us never to eat in public. Similarly, we express a normal and very healthy reticence about bathroom activities. On the other hand, as purely spiritual occupations, reading and art evoke no discomfort. Going to the bathroom, yeah, we camouflage it. We talk about, we don't say what we really are doing, we talk about going to the men's room, or we go to the powder room, and when you go there, you find monogrammed towels, and decorated rooms, and pieces of soap shaped like seashells. It's as if everything is done to add a spiritual overlay, a kind of a ritual to something that we share with animals so that when we do it we do it in a very different way in the same way that reading or praying or uh, or or uh, enjoying music develop no discomfort in us we don't feel that those activities need to be surrounded with ritual similarly buying and selling should evoke no psychic discomfort in us at all. Economic activity is another way in which we satisfyingly distance ourselves from the animal kingdom and justify our humanity. This helps to explain why the most secular elements in American society commonly lead assaults on the free market. Almost inevitable, the assaults that come come from people who are basically on the atheistic end. It's inevitable. Those who have rejected religion are eager to find other outlets for their moral expression. There is no better way than to exhibit a revulsion for democratic capitalism. Today we hear people referring to the 80s as a period of moral depravity. Being unaware of the spiritual nature of money and of wealth creation, those individuals consider the miracle of economic enterprise to be the human equivalent of dogs fighting over a bone. When we come back, I want to tell you about the the historic clash between socialism and the traditional wisdom of the West. But uh, for now, we'll pause, take a quick break. The website, rabbi.daniellappen.com. The download for your edification, education, enjoyment and delight is called the Biblical Blueprint Set. It's an audio download you can do immediately, instantly, and something that uh, will benefit you and your family. Great, great discussion points in, in almost every few minutes of that program, which was why we created it. The website, RabbiDanielLappin.com But as a regular listener, you already know that. And if you're not a regular listener, well, I welcome you as a newcomer. Quick pause, and uh, we proceed to the next segment to wrap up the show. Okay, uh, we're back. Let's continue, shall we? Um, So, I was speaking about the fact that um, uh, there's a tendency in today's culture to refer to anything having to do with wealth creation. Uh, If the economy is going up, then the culture tends to denigrate the period of economic prosperity as a period of moral depravity. Um, this by the way i've i've gone back and looked all the way back to the late 1960s and you know i consider the 60s to be a a bridge point and uh, almost without uh, exception uh, in those in, in that period if you take a look at the times when things have been positive economically uh, all the way up to the period of uh, 2017 and 2018. Uh, Significantly up, you will see the culture, uh, meaning news media, um, higher education, entertainment. The loudest voices in shaping cultural opinion uh, dismiss always, oh, it's a bad time, people are bad, it's moral depravity, essentially. Uh, in in the most recent period, as I say 2017 and twenty eighteen uh dismissing the period as trumpism and uh, a period of of greed and hatred and and white supremacy etc., etc etc all uh, all in an effort to undermine the uh, economic good times or at least economic improvement um, basically, these people look at economic enterprise, transactions between free individuals, voluntary transactions, they translate that as the human equivalent of dogs fighting over a bone. The great historic clash between socialism and the more traditional wisdom of the West ...is really just a reflection of a a more fundamental underlying disagreement. This is a disagreement over the origin of mankind. And as I've pointed out before, this is not a question that needs to be debated in churches and divinity schools. It's a question that needs to be settled in corporate boardrooms. It needs to be settled in business schools either God created us or we evolved from primeval protein sludge passing through a primate-like phase on the way. No one has yet proposed a realistic third alternative. Those are the only two ways of explaining our presence. Now, if we accept the godless alternative— then indeed we do not differ in kind from monkeys or other animals. We only differ in degree. We are less facile in speed and strength and hearing and sight than some animals, but we think and speak a little better than others. You win some, you lose some. Animals do not create wealth. They merely seize the commodities they need, and people obviously do the same since we are just a variation of animal. People might employ more sophisticated methods, like bonds, shares, debentures, and other tools of the trade of finance, but it is nonetheless nothing but seizing. Clearly, morally sensitive people have to decry this activity. Sure enough, American politics and academia long dominated by those hostile to a traditional view, echo this approach. Those that most strongly advance evolution as the one and only explanation for our presence on the planet are also those that most aggressively oppose the free market economy. It's unmistakable. But on the other hand, if God did create us and touched us with his abilities— then we are qualitatively different from animals. Our ability to speak and to create is quite unique. Therefore, animals plunder, but people profit. The creation of wealth is an expression of our godly origins. This view of man's origins, well, it helps us to subdue the feelings of guilt often brought on by success. Usually, people with no religious faith who enjoy sudden success—think of Hollywood celebrities, for instance—they develop an almost irrational dedication to socialist causes. If ideas do have consequences—and they do—the idea that we are descended from angels rather than ascended from apes has undoubtedly played a role in one of the most magnificent consequences of history. American Democratic Capitalism. Revealing his own brand of genius in a fantastic poem, it's more of an epic, called Paradise Lost, the English poet John Milton, uh, by the way, who who, uh, exercised considerable influence on the pilgrims and, and that group of people who played such a role in the history of the 17th century. Um, John Milton, his poem, by the way, Paradise Lost, worth taking a look at. Uh, He etched the Bible centrality in our literary consciousness. He, He really did. He reflected everyone's subconscious awareness that the opening chapters of the Bible focus on the eternal tug of war for man's soul between angels and apes. There's this titanic struggle between the di, di, between the divine aspirations of a person's nobility, along with our basest indulgences, right? And there's not a person among us that doesn't feel that internal tension, a tension one as one part of it pulling us upwards, and another part of it holding us down. Whom would Adam obey, God? or the serpent personification of the animal kingdom. Well, after thousands of years of human history, the lingering memory of that struggle still resonates in our souls. All heirs to the Judeo-Christian tradition feel the need to distinguish ourselves from animals and to unequivocally demonstrate who it was who won that primeval conflict. Seizing another's property by force is animalistic and a victory for the serpent, but purchasing it voluntarily for the price set by the seller finds favor in God's eyes. A store or a market is one of the few places in which strangers interact voluntarily, leaving each party happier than he was before. No wonder, then, that God smiles upon the marketplace freedom from tyranny is a necessary precondition for both worship and trade it's therefore it's not surprising is it that economics used to be a field of study that belonged with religion and theology adam smith as well as many other 18th century economists were religious philosophers before they were economists Adam Smith, for instance, wrote a book called Theory of Moral Sentiments before he ever wrote Wealth of Nations. That was published same time as Our Nation formed, 1776. When the great universities moved the study of economics from their religious departments, where they used to be, to their science departments, they were actually driving a wedge between capitalism and the moral arguments and spiritual dimensions that under pin its very validity after all whether a man dissipates his money frivolously or he invests it wisely and whether or not he will bend rules to earn it depend mostly on his character and on his moral makeup no wonder that the science that seeks to predict these things namely economics (laughs) is known as the that's right the dismal science Money is spiritual, and how men and women relate to it depends mostly on the state of their soul. Faith is the fuel that drives both commerce and religion. Establishing that a close relationship exists between God and the marketplace helps us in three crucial areas. Firstly, it helps to explain why atheism and business are not natural allies. Wouldn't you have supposed that a philosophy of secular fundamentalism, recognizing no authority, no morality, sanctioning all behavior, would be naturally drawn to the world of money and power? One would have expected the political left to excuse what it calls the greed of capitalism and to recognize it as nothing other than Darwinian law applied to the life of modern people but this is not possible. Something as truly spiritual as business and commercial interaction simply cannot coexist with socialism. The atheist himself recognizes that to be true to his credo, he must first reject the free market because of its godliness. The second thing that a close relationship between God and the marketplace helps us with is that it helps us integrate our careers into our lives instead of regarding those daily eight or ten hours at which we work as a distasteful and isolated part of life. Business is business, cannot serve as a convenient explanation for moral departures in the marketplace because business is really tied to life by overall spiritual awareness. Immorality in business should be as repugnant as immorality in marriage. Finally, the third area in which understanding this link between God and the marketplace, the third area that helps us, is that when we recognize this, what I call the congruence between work and spiritual reality, the business professional, man or woman, is all the better able to sell him or herself and their product. The work is creative and therefore a legitimate way of emulating God and his infinite creativity. Anyone with a sneaking conviction that socialism has a point and that man and his abilities are limited, as is the economic pie, and that he who brings that pie to market and slices it for customers is exploiting both the baker and the public, well, that person is forever handicapped as a businessman, never going to make much money. Nobody ever throws himself wholeheartedly into an endeavor that secretly in his heart he considers to be demeaning and unworthy the difference between the animal instinct of a squirrel gathering nuts and the inherent nobility of a human being earning a living, well, that becomes clear when you take a look at economic enterprise in its correct position at the spiritual end of that spectrum I was telling you about. Failure to grasp the interdependency between a people's morality and the health of their economy Well, that comes with a high cost. People often lose sight of how a socialistic government and its confiscatory tax policies will force increasingly desperate citizens to become petty felons as they struggle in futility to preserve the fruit of their labors. As people inevitably begin to cut corners, they lose some of their moral self-esteem, thereby lowering the trigger threshold of the internal moral alarm. This has a corrosive effect that ripples out to every corner of the population. I think Americans are just beginning to sense that many of the social pathologies that have made life more dangerous and expensive and squalid since the early 1960s have their roots in the uprooting of religion from public life. We should also realize that the furious fever of secularization that has wreaked havoc on our public schools, our universities, and our families has not left our economy immune, right? It doesn't require a very elaborate thought experiment to demonstrate how much our economy would be boosted by restoring a traditional view of money. We need only contemplate why so many people glorify art and music and why they treat galleries and concert halls with an almost religious fervor. They do so out of a deep human need to devote at least part of their existence to activities which they feel uplift them. Art and music elevate because they are God-given and therefore unique to human beings. America's wealth-producing institutions, namely businesses, um, ought to arouse the same feelings of respect and awe for precisely the same reasons. Do you see what I'm saying? Art and music, and you know, everybody loves supporting the arts. But you should be just as enthusiastic about supporting business, because when we join the frantic rush to abandon every vestige of our religious tradition, then any free market enthusiast has unwittingly contributed to the sabotaging of our own prosperity. A little thought experiment shows that once our business infrastructure would enjoy similar social esteem, to that of the art establishment, which, by the way, it very generously underwrites, there will be at least one very valuable outcome. Politicians will tremble in fear before venturing an assault on the fountainhead of prosperity that for so long has been American business. It was in 1925 that Calvin Coolidge, said the following. It often gets misquoted and taken out of context, but what he said was, after all, the chief business of the American people is business. They are profoundly concerned with producing, buying, selling, investing, and prospering in the world. I am strongly of the opinion that the great majority of people will always find these the moving impulses of our life. That is quite right, and I've often said I would much rather a person is trying to improve his own financial situation than that he engages in politics. Because if he engages in politics, his hands are going straight into my wallet and he is doing everything he can to increase his power over my life. When we speak about the business of the American people being business, business really just means the private sector. It means each and every one of us finding ways to effectively serve our fellow citizens and our fellow human beings. And the money that flows is one of the great secrets of the spirituality of money. There's so much more to talk about on this, but we really are out of time. And so I ask you to visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look at some of the columns you may have missed that are there. Be in touch with us. Maybe you've got a question to submit. Maybe you're not yet subscribed to Thought Tools or to Susan's Musings. And uh, take a look at the store in the hope of finding something that can practically enhance your life. And particularly uh, this week, we are encouraging you to take a good look at the Biblical Blueprint Set, which you can easily and quickly download at a very good price. And that means we are at the end of today's show. And so I wish you a week of good times, my friends and listeners. I appreciate you. Good times in your friendships and in your faith, your finances, and above all, in your families. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.